This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Welcome to Speaker for the Living. I'm Seth Dare. I'm here today with Amber Moffat, Graduate Associate Director of the Human Trafficking Center. Welcome, Amber. Thank you. So Amber and I uh, are still working together in the Human Trafficking Center. I'm finishing up this quarter at the, the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver, which continues to be a mouthful. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about refugees and their vulnerability to trafficking. So in your role at, at the Human Trafficking Center, uh, what does that all entail? Um, you know, a lot of it's kind of supervisory. It's, it sounds, the title sounds a lot more impressive than it is, I think. Um, it's very, you know, I, I make sure that everybody's basically doing their job, which with the staff I have is probably the easiest thing in the world. So, you know, just making sure that um, everybody's doing what they say they're doing, making sure that research is getting done, and making sure that events are getting planned, and helping to facilitate that in any way I can. And uh, what is the Human Trafficking Center currently working on? What are some projects? Uh, the Human Trafficking Index, the biggest bread and butter, the biggest ongoing project, which is basically looking at the United States Trafficking in Persons reports and recording mentions of certain variables that we've come up with, uh, whether that be if they're a destination country for human trafficking or an origin country for human trafficking or certain laws that they have put in place or certain protections for trafficking victims. So we, we go through every single country's report every single year and code all of that to try and begin to see trends of you know, what's happening where, what's developing where. Some of the research that we're looking that we're trying to get off the ground for this year is a big uh, supply chain project. We're you know trying to form what does that supply chain project look like? How can it carry on through the years? And so we're beginning to look at just different areas of supply chain management, and then also a legislation project. And so what we're doing now is we're looking at each state in the U.S their legislation and what laws they have as far as human trafficking to hopefully begin to look at the efficacy of those laws, you know, how effective they are, whether or not they make sense. But that, you know, those, the supply chain management and the legislation are in the very, very beginning nascent stages of that kind of project formation. Well, with uh, the current topic, refugees, which relates to a lot of government policies and how they vet, and part of the reason why this is important to us is because human trafficking and other forms of modern slavery feed off of vulnerable populations, people who are outside their country, people who economically are in need, etc., and refugees uh, fill those in a number of ways, which we'll get into. So with human rights in general, uh, human rights, as the UN talks about them and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, they are meant to be universal. They are meant to be aspirational. And there are conventions which legally apply that when a country signs them, that 
a country like the United States is then supposed to enact legislation to enforce them. And then there's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is more of we're aspiring to these. This is what we want to be universal. And it has more of a soft law, encouragement, shaming power. But we are still in a state-based system. Rights are enforced by states or countries. Mm -hmm. And you need to be a citizen to have full rights within that country. So if you don't have a state, and there's a few ways to, to think about this. For one, there is a concept of statelessness where uh, people, uh, there's one group in, in Burma where... Rohingya? Yeah. Yeah. The Rohingya who are not recognized for citizenship and therefore, uh, because of law, do not have citizenship. When Yugoslavia went away... If the new country did not recognize them, then there are people who weren't weren't part of a state there and weren't citizens. And there is an estimated it's it's rough because it, it we are talking about populations that are not recognized, but there's uh, estimated over ten million, a lot of them children. And you need to have a state to advocate for you or somebody to advocate for you. And you need, if you don't have a recourse in a, in a system, it's going to be very difficult to claim your rights or to be protected. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's, um, it's something that not a lot of people think about because not a lot of people know that there are populations that are actually stateless, like, as in they don't have a nationality. Even though the U.S. may see them as having a certain nationality, doesn't mean that that country is actively protecting them, such as the Rohingya. Um, you know, we, we see it as, oh, well, you were born there and your parents were born there, but that local government doesn't necessarily see it the same way. And so at first it seems, when you first think about it, you're like, oh, it doesn't seem like that would be that big of a deal. But then when you actually start to realize the repercussions of it, if you are hurt, there's not necessarily recourse for healthcare. If the government doesn't see you as a citizen, they don't necessarily have to provide you with healthcare. They don't have to provide you with education. They don't have to provide you with protections. So it becomes a really, really big problem. Now with refugees, they aren't in that sense stateless because they do have a home state. But when things are disruptive like they are in Syria where you have regions where people have a well-founded fear and I'm mentioning that for a reason we'll get back to that and people wonder about their safety and then they go go into either the refugee or asylee system which are very different I mean that should be that should be noted that refugees and asylees I mean I'm sure we'll get to that too but they are different that they're still in a precarious position, and there are ways that they are stateless in that they, their home country is not really helping them right now, so they're going elsewhere. And not only do they have less legal rights, especially when they first leave, but then they also socially have a challenge because they are foreigners to the place where they're going. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's really important to note that with refugees, unless, unless you actually cross an international border, 
you're not, I mean, you're not considered a refugee unless you do that. So in order to be a refugee, you have to have crossed from your home country into another country that is nationally recognized as crossing into another country. I, I mentioned that just because mm -hmm. there's, there's really question as to whether or not Palestinians, you know, kind of constitute refugees um, because of border issues. You know, is it Israel? Is it Palestine? So, but taking that aside, mm -hmm. when you cross over into another country, that country is not necessarily responsible for upholding protections for you and your rights. It's also up to that country as to whether or not they're going to consider you a refugee. It's really up to the host country. It's not up to the rest of the world to tell that country, hey, you need to consider these people refugees. So that's, that's kind of an interesting aspect to it. And additionally, it's up to that host country as to what services they provide refugees. If they don't want to let in UNHCR to set up camps, they don't have to. That's, that's the challenge of state sovereignty. So, you know, if they don't want to provide education, but they do want to provide space for camps, that's within their prerogative. You, I mean, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of similarities between refugees and stateless populations. They don't have their home country providing for them, particularly because they're not in their home country any longer. And a lot of a lot of countries also begin to see it as, oh, well, you left. You obviously don't want our services. So then there can be some tensions in that way. And returning home can be very problematic for a lot of refugees as well because of that. Now, one factor relating to refugees is the refugee status is connected to a, uh, a, conven a UN convention, the 1951 Refugee Convention which many countries like the U.S. signed in saying that they're willing to take on refugees in certain circumstances. Some of the Arab countries like Saudi Arabia have gotten flack or praise for not taking in refugees from various people. They didn't sign the refugee convention. That's a big reason why is they never said that they were willing to. But uh, the United States did and Whatever imperfections our country has, we are a human rights leader and a human rights promoter. And so what we do with refugees and asylees matters as the world looks at us. So let's go a little more into refugees. We'll also uh, mention how the asylee process works. But where does a refugee start? So somebody leaves their country... And then what? So in order to be considered a refugee in the first place, like I said, you have to cross over the international border and then you have to be recognized as a refugee and registered through uh, UNHCR is really the biggest one. And which is? Which is the UN Human Rights... No, hang on. <laughs> That's embarrassing. United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. UNHCR, yes, High Commissioner for Refugees. And uh, it's funny, you say these acronyms so often and you know what they are, but then when somebody asks, you're like, oh, that's right, I have to, now I have to mention this for people who aren't used to hearing this acronym a million times a day. Anyway, so you start with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, and 
that section of the UN. You register with them. Um, I think in a couple other places, you know, it's someone else that runs the camps like World Food Program. The IOM, I think, helps run some of the refugee camps as well, which is International Organization for Migration, but most of the time it's UNHCR. And so you have to register with them and actually be recognized as a refugee by them first. And that's where it begins, oftentimes in a refugee camp. Now, they can refuse you refugee status if they don't determine that you fall under the criteria of being a refugee. That is a possibility. So especially with the Syria crisis, how long might a person be in a refugee camp? Oh my gosh, years. Years. Um, There are instances of people being born and raised in refugee camps. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, not not in the camps for Syrian refugees right now, um, but there are other camps in Africa, like in Kenya, where people have literally been born and brought up in and have become adults in a refugee camp. So, I mean, you could spend anywhere from, you know, three months to 15 years there. I mean, there's just no telling. It depends on the conflict. It depends on the person, whether or not they want to stay there. Because you don't have to stay in a refugee camp. You can go back. You can go somewhere else, theoretically. I mean, you have that choice. Whether or not it's a good choice to take is another story. But you have the option. And then there are people who come to the refugee camp, leave, and then return. So, Amber, what are the conditions of those camps? And uh, is there any relation to uh, trafficking or, or any other vulnerabilities? Oh, yeah. So the conditions of camps vary from camp to camp. Some camps are actually pretty well run, they're organized, they're safe, but then there are other camps that are really, really unsafe and really um, have a lot of violence going on in those camps. There are times when there's not enough food per person, so there can be violence over food. People can get robbed from the food pickup station on their way to their designated tent or home within the camp. And then because of this, uh, because of the violence that happens, because of the scarcity that is in some of these camps, because of the lack of protection that is in some of these camps, um, there is some trafficking that happens both within the camp and trafficking that happens from within to without the camp, if that makes sense. Um, So there can be trafficking within the camp, such as, I mean, everybody's favorite sex trafficking, to hear about, but um, you know, there's that kind of exploitation of, oh, well, we'll trade, we'll trade sex for food, basically. And so then there are many instances of parents or husbands basically forcing or coercing daughters or wives or children in general. It's not exclusive to females, but you know, forcing them into basically a trafficking situation in order to make gains off of off of their exploitation. Um, then there are also so many people in, within camps that can become desperate to make it to a safer place. So there are those who, are, who will say, hey, so I can smuggle you from this camp into, I don't know, into Greece or somewhere in Europe or wherever. And they're so desperate to get out of that situation that they 
put themselves in the hands of what they believe to be a smuggler and then only to find themselves later in a situation that they were not promised, in a situation that they didn't sign up for. Now, assuming somebody's at a camp and they are not trafficked and, and go, continue to go through the process, then if they're a refugee, then the United Nations will, one of their agencies will do vetting? From my understanding, they go through like a vetting process within a UN agency. Um, again, oftentimes UNHCR. They will also, depending on where they're at, go through a refugee status determination in the host country that has that is hosting the camp. So, um, you know, first you have to be deemed a refugee by UNHCR. Then the host country has to deem you a refugee. And then after that, should you make it through all of that, if you want to be resettled into a third country, then the country that is willing to take you in as a refugee vets you. And in the case of the U.S., very extensively. There is a huge process you have to go through vetting through several different government agencies in order to be allowed into the country as a refugee. Um, there's actually this really interesting infographic that I just came across. It's on whitehouse.gov's website, and it's uh, the screening process for refugee entry into the U.S., and it is a really long page. I hadn't seen this infographic until right before we started, but uh, it tells about the different agencies that you get screened through. It tells about um, the different like biometrics you have to do, and then the medical checks, and then it's kind of interesting, just if for no other reason than to see how long this infographic is on the page. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes. But can, we, we do a lot of vetting our our country, our, our embassies with visa for people who apply for different types of visas, and those often involve interviews. And this is even more extensive on average than that. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize actually that refugees in the U.S. are among the most highly vetted group of people that enter the country. So when vetting, there's a few things that are common both with the U.S. process, which is asylum, and the refugee process, which goes to the U.N. The stories are checked, and they, they check either based on uh, interviews of people, they, in, they interview the person applying, they have ex expert testimony if available, there's research that could be presented based on human rights reports on a given country. So that's part of what happens. And, and ultimately, they are looking for a well-founded fear where that person believes that if they go back to their country, that they either have a, a past event or events that have uh, caused them to have fear or, or they've been tortured and that things have not changed in that country, or if they went back, they believe that there would be future persecution based on their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular group. So you can't just be like, well, there's civil unrest in my country and I want protection. I want to go to another country and be a refugee. That alone is not enough if you don't have a well-founded fear. 
being an economic migrant where you just can't get a job. Maybe your whole region has been destabilized economically for a variety of reasons. You go to another country and you want to be a refugee. No, under our current system, that is not sufficient. Environmental migrants as well aren't covered. So if your home is half underwater because of flooding, because of climate change, then um, you still are not a refugee. So it, because that doesn't constitute a well-founded fear of persecution. So what I've just mentioned are the uh, asylum factors for U.S. Uh, I have worked on a, a expert testimony research that I presented to in Denver. I handed over in case they wanted to use it for an actual asylum applicant. It was interesting to go that far and really see, okay, does this person's story add up? Do the dates add up? Did these events actually happen? Is it plausible that this story is true? And that's only one testimony as to whether that could have happened. And they also look go through other avenues to see whether this is a valid refugee or asylee. Yeah, they check. They also will check family members, and you know, most people with refugees, especially now, are worried about the whole terrorism aspect, which, granted, can be a valid concern. However, I mean, when you when you look at the data, it's especially in the U.S., it's such a small, small, absolutely minute number that, I mean, I mean, it's just ridiculous that people here in the U.S. are concerned about that at all just because of the number of incidences that have happened here in the U.S., or lack thereof, rather. Mm-hmm. But um, if your family, it, if you have a family member that's been involved in any sort of um, group on our terrorist group list, if you have family members who are friends with people who have been involved, and they, then oftentimes the U.S. will deny you entry and they won't accept you as a refugee. So, I mean, they'll check family members, they'll check friends, they'll check your work history, they'll check everything they absolutely can as far as contacts in your home country and contacts that you've had since leaving your home country. If you have any sort of criminal history, um, some refugees aren't accepted into the U.S. based on health reasons even, um, not even a danger of, of terrorism or or you know groups that you've been involved in, but health reasons, then you know sometimes you're denied for those. So I mean it's very very extensive. Well, and even when they have gotten through the cracks, such as the the two from Iraq who uh, tried to commit an act, first of all our security apparatus caught them, mm-hmm. and second of all we already had the information in a DoD database that at that time wasn't part of the process and now is. So of all the means of access to the United States, uh, refugees are not one of the top concerns. And certainly when we start to scrutinize them and look at them as all a potential danger or to make them outsiders, then we're in danger of actually making them isolated and making them more vulnerable. Well, and isolated or it it makes them vulnerable. But I mean, since we were on the terrorism Mm -hmm. talk anyway, isolation is 
a huge factor in radicalization. So, I mean, that's kind of an interesting vulnerability I hadn't thought about until literally just now. You, normally you think of vulnerability as far as to trafficking or to exploitation, but you're also vulnerable to other, other factors such as radicalization when you isolate someone. So whoever is listening, we don't want to minimize any of your concerns, but we want to talk about the context, which we've been doing. And we want to talk about the challenge for the refugee and where they are in danger. And we'll uh, continue to do that. So are there any other factors relating to the refugee or asylee process? I guess we could talk about the U.S. a bit more. I mean, you talked about the asylee process a little bit, but um, someone who is who would be considered a refugee but didn't go through the whole process. They Mm -hmm. just ended up making it to the U.S. or whatever host country and then claimed asylum. Um, They're asylees. They're not refugees. Right. Specifically, if some Coptic Christians from Iraq come to the border, they have the option of come to the southern border of the United States. They have the option of declaring at that time that they want asylum protection, or if they happen, as they did, the group I'm mentioning, if they come in and say, well, we're going to come in with false papers and then get caught, they also can still apply for asylee protection. And then it comes down to going through the process of vetting in the United States, and do they have a well-founded fear? Otherwise, it doesn't matter who they are, where they come from, they have to prove a well-founded fear of physical or psychological, I'm not sure if it's psychological, primarily harm. Yeah, um, I mean, psychological, If it, I mean, if it's severe enough, then psychological yeah. <laughs> is included in that. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, that's the big difference between refugees and asylees is uh, the entry point, whether it's at the border of a country or whether it's through a, uh, a camp. Yeah, through the whole refugee system, which again is very, very extensive. And one thing that's really also important to note when you're talking about refugees is there are three major solutions, quote unquote, that are... Um, aimed for by the UN, and one of them is return to their home. Uh, The other one is assimilation into the current culture. So if you're in a camp in Turkey, for instance, um, another sought-after solution would be assimilation into that particular city or that particular country. And then finally, then there's the third-party resettlement or or third-country resettlement which would be the refugees that come here to the U.S. But that's such a small percentage of the refugees that are out there. It's um, actually less than 5% actually get resettled into another country. So we're talking a small, small amount actually get resettled. And this resettlement process takes years. This can often take, um, I mean, several years around five for some. So, I mean, it's a long process. And the scale of the issue with uh, Syria, with Colombia, which are two of the higher countries of displacement and other countries, 
it's really straining the refugee system and it's creating all sorts of vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. Very much so. So where do traffickers come into the picture? So one of my favorite quotes, and I'm trying to remember um, who said it. I can look it up, but it said that traffickers fish in the stream of migration. Um, And so basically people who are fleeing for whatever reason, whether that be conflict or fleeing because of persecution or whatever it is they're fleeing from, they are doing it for a reason, obviously. They feel that they are no longer safe where they were at and they have no other option than to leave. And so there's an element of desperation that comes in there. And so when you're presented with an option of of something even kind of safer, then many people are going to take it. Um, whether that be smuggling, whether that be trafficking. And so that's really where that fits in um, is traffickers take advantage of that desperation and of those vulnerabilities. I mean, oftentimes you haven't eaten in a very long time. You haven't slept under a roof in a very long time. You crossed the Mediterranean on an extremely unsafe raft. Um, So there's a lot that you would take someone up on that you wouldn't necessarily normally do under other circumstances unless you absolutely had to. And you you get into the issue of smuggling, which is still different from trafficking, but oftentimes will lead to trafficking. So you get into the issue of smuggling, a lot of people will pay a smuggler thinking, oh, okay, well, this smuggler will get me into the country and then I'll go off and find a job or claim asylum or whatever their plan is only to show up and then find out, oh, I don't have the freedom to leave or I don't have the freedom to choose the work that I do um, or I didn't even show up in the place that I was promised, then that's when the smuggling turns into an issue of trafficking. And refugees face some of the same Uh, factors of any migrant. They're in a different country. They don't know the laws. They don't know who they can trust. They may not speak the language. They don't know customs, or at least on all these things, they may be limited. And so traffickers can play on those concerns. And not knowing the laws is probably one of the biggest hurdles that refugees will face and that can lead to trafficking situations because a lot of a lot of people who are trafficked end up not having any recourse because they don't know that they have rights or they don't know who to go to Um, they don't know that oh it's illegal for this person to hold my passport and not give it to me So not knowing the laws is huge. They don't know that there are labor protections necessarily, or they don't know what the labor protections are. Um, So a lot of them don't even realize that the trafficker is breaking the law, but they're so afraid. What they do know is that they're in a place illegally. So they're so afraid of being caught and being deported back to where where they were fleeing that they don't go to anybody. 
And some traffickers outright use that as leverage, that if you complain or speak up, mm -hmm. we'll deport you or you'll be arrested. Exactly. Or you'll be thrown in jail. That's another big one. Now, we know from the sheep herders in Colorado and Wyoming that uh, some of them report having their passports taken, and those are people who come here legal, through, through legal visas to work. So I don't know what they're told when they come across. In regards to refugees, do you know anything about their assimilation process when they come in? When they come in? Yeah, I actually worked for the... African Community Center here in Denver for a short time. It was only uh, maybe two months. It was a very short time, but I got to work in case management. So I got to learn about, you know, the orientations that they go through. Um, it's not extremely extensive, but they do get at least some. Um, you know, one of, one of the things that we told people is one of the first things that you do that a case manager will have a refugee do is to get their social social security card um because without a social security card i mean you can't do anything in this country you know um mm -hmm. you can't get a job theoretically you can't do any number of things so one of the one of the things that at least the case manager i worked for was very very clear about in every orientation he did was when you get this social security card you don't give it to anybody. You don't, you also don't keep it in your wallet. You know, good advice for anybody here in the U.S. Don't, mm -hmm. if, if you're doing that, please stop. Don't keep it in your wallet. Um, so, you know, we tell them don't keep it in your wallet. Don't give your social security card to anyone. You can show it to people like your employer, um, but you don't just give it to them and then not get it back. And so they're very clear about that and about some other documents like if you have a visa to come in or if you had any sort of entry documents into the U.S. some people do um, and or like your ID you don't give it to people and not give it back and so that is made very clear in um, in their original orientation some laws are made clear but most of those are cultural you know mm -hmm. like you have to wear a seatbelt here um, and then, you know, it's also, they're also told who to call in, in the case of an emergency. So, you know, it's, it's kind of tried, maybe not the most effectively, but it's imparted upon them that, yes, we do call the police here and the police are to be trusted here. Um, so hopefully that gets across at least some, because some refugees do come from a place where you don't trust the police. You have to bribe the police if you want anything from them. Now, refugees, like anyone with a, a visa who comes in here, but even refugees who are given indefinite status to be here, it's conditional. It can be revoked. Mm -hmm. And if you're coming from a place where you are fearful for your life, that if they make a mistake, that they're going back home, and that is something that is over their heads. And so... Just because somebody is a refugee doesn't mean that they don't have concerns about uh, about having to leave or that they cannot be manipulated in any such way. Right. Yeah, um, it's in the case management orientation. It is also expressed to them that 
you know, if, if you break certain laws, that's grounds for deportation and going back. Um, so, you know, like if you commit a felony, you can be deported. So, yeah, I mean, it, just because they're a refugee doesn't mean they get a free pass. It doesn't mean, oh, you're here and you're staying here and that's just, and that's that, that's final. Um, I think the grounds for deportation are probably pretty high. Like, I mean, the bar is probably pretty high. I'm not entirely certain because I didn't really deal with that a whole lot. But it is still a concern for sure. I mean, that's, that's a definite concern. And that's something that could absolutely be held over their heads under the right circumstances. Well, and Amber and I, and probably a number of you, have traveled to other countries for periods of time and do a little bit of research and so have an idea of what some of the culture and some of the laws are. But even when we go in that circumstance, we know that there's conditions. We know we don't know all the laws. We definitely don't know all the customs. I mean, even buying something at a store, there's a lot of nuance to just doing that. And that's when we choose to do it without fear. And so I say all that just to try to help the the empathy of there you know, it's challenging to go to another country and figure out what's going on. Yeah, one of my favorite things actually was hearing um, in again the same the same orientation I did a lot of these orientations and sat through a couple of them um, so uh, but one of my favorite things was that we had to tell a lot of people you know um, there are certain places that you don't just congregate because in a lot of other countries you just go to the local store and you sit out front and that was a meeting place or you know so so people have been had to be told here no you don't go to the post office just to hang out um and so those are the kinds of cultural differences like if you go to a coffee shop you're expected to buy something you can't just show up and sit there for as long as you want and then leave without buying something but that's the kind of cultural nuance that you don't always get and you know, again, I mean, that just goes to show is how challenging it can be to move to a place that is so entirely different from where you were from. Even even if you don't want to go back to where you were from, it's still extraordinarily challenging. Um, there's so much that you're up against. I mean, navigating the welfare system if you need it, getting a job, um, how to apply for a job. I mean, we're brought up and we just know almost intuitively oh you submit an application or you submit your resume even if you don't necessarily know how to write the best resume you know that that's the process whereas a lot of refugees don't know this process yet they have to be taught they don't know how to go and and apply for an apartment necessarily i mean some do obviously this is a generalization but you don't know how to apply for an apartment you don't know not to go congregate outside the post office because that's technically loitering but yeah, it's, it's the loitering one and having to explain loitering. That was probably one of my favorite things that I just, it was like a mind blowing moment. I was like, you know, I just hadn't even considered that because I'd not, I grew up knowing, oh, you, you know, hang out at the post office, but in other countries and in other cultures, that's not necessarily the case. There are meeting places all over in public and that's just what you do. Well, and some of what we've just mentioned is not, it's 
might not be mind-blowing to you. It might just seem pretty obvious that, yeah, you're in another country, there's things to sort out, and I don't know what else you're thinking, but <laughs> the fact is people that are going to do illegal activities, like try to control people so that they can make them work for free or near free or in debt so that they can exploit them and have money and then kick them to the curb when they're done. They want to be able to manipulate people. So they look for populations that are more vulnerable. And when you're a refugee where you've just left a situation because you're afraid of it and you go through sometimes harrowing processes to get to camps or to countries and you after the whirlwind you finally get resettled there are multiple points where you're very vulnerable in just the travel and camp etc and then you get to the country and there's still gaps where you could be exploited well and even um once you once you get here as a refugee sometimes the conditions that you're being exploited under are better than the conditions you came from so you have to think about that aspect as well of of a lot of people don't think they they think well this is much better than what i had before so they don't necessarily see that they're being exploited um even though we here in the us as us citizens we see it and we're like no that's that's a terrible situation that's illegal, their thought process is, oh, well, this is much better than where I came from. And, but does that make it any better? No, I mean, absolutely not. But that's what is, you know, preventing a lot of traffickers or exploiters from being caught. I mean, that's something else to think about too that makes it just one more facet of this entirely complex problem that is being faced. And it's hard to investigate, especially when it's like labor trafficking and they might even be working with other workers who might not be being trafficked. And then you have to look at payroll records and it just gets really complicated for law enforcement who is really trying to do something. Mm -hmm. Or prosecutors too. I mean, a lot of prosecutors have to turn down cases just because they don't have the evidence to actually prosecute. So... You have prosecutors who are looking at it and saying, oh, well, we don't have enough evidence here. It's a waste of taxpayer money to go through with the process because they already know that there's not enough to prosecute on. You know, and they, they want to. They want, they want to be able to go after and, and these uh, exploiters and traffickers. And, and, um, but, I mean, they just can't. You know, they have... They have taxpayer money to look out for. They have time and resources to look out for. Um, again, it doesn't make anybody happy hearing that, but that's the reality of the situation, unfortunately. Well, and I don't take the position that we need to take care of everybody who's vulnerable in the world, because I know some of you might be thinking that. Fair enough. But on the other hand... We signed on to do this, and we are a model to the world. And for any refugees that we do take in, please do not demonize or other the people who we've invited into our country through the refugee process. That just makes them more vulnerable.
and it makes it even less even harder for law enforcement to do their job absolutely one of one of the big reasons why i wanted to do this topic is because we are at a time where granted we have the biggest population the world has ever seen of course but we also Mm -hmm. with that we have more displaced people in the world now than there have ever been and the number is growing it's it's not a linear growth it's actually an exponential growth that number is rapidly rapidly increasing so there are a lot of people who really need i mean i don't want to sound like the big savior complex and like coming in to save the day but there are a lot of people who do need help whether that be a new place to live or help in going back to where they where they were from um i mean being displaced from your home forcibly is like you said sometimes harrowing experience it's one of the biggest reasons i wanted to do this i mean there are six million for syrian for for displaced syrian population alone that's not considering refugees from other countries that's not including colombian populations that have been displaced internally or externally um or the rohingya or any number of other populations so it's it's something and the u.s this is the other reason why it's so important the u.s takes in so few, we take in a lot of refugees. There, there, I mean, it's a big number. I think Obama upped it to 18,000. Is that the number? That seems really low to me. Um, I mean, he, he bumped it up from what we were going to, maybe it's 180,000, maybe my decimal's in the wrong place. Um, but he bumped up the, Obama bumped up the number of refugees that we were going to be taking in. But even with that increase, it's still so minute compared to the number of refugees looking for resettlement. And other Western European countries are equally as small. It's, it's such a small ripple in the huge pool. So one of the things that I really, really wanna get across is how vulnerable these populations are and the challenges that they face. So, and how vetted these populations are in the US. So that hopefully it reduces the othering of this of these people and helps to increase the actual assimilation and so that you know people don't keep thinking that we need to fear them and and that they're less than human so amber and i as two people along with our colleagues who are trying to tackle this big issue of human trafficking which involves sex and labor and debt bondage and other forms of forced servitude it's hard to deal with and when we have stateless people when we have large refugee populations we're not only having to address a lot of vulnerability and not only are traffickers looking at a lot of these people as vulnerable but if we don't find ways to address these solutions versus saying well let's not take people in because it's not our problem the world needs to find a way to address the state issue because it's not just Syria's issue and it's not just Assad's issue it's impacting the world 
not because of refugee programs, but because this sort of failed state or civil unrest where people are spreading and don't have legal protections and don't have social protections, there's ripple effects with all of this. And if it provides the seeds for more human trafficking and forced labor and exploitation, it's causing more human misery. And we, we can't just close our eyes to it and pretend that it doesn't affect us because we're America and we can get by without taking in more refugees. Yeah, it's a matter of it's a matter of addressing the causes of human trafficking rather than the symptoms. Um, you have to look at the actual underlying causes, and one of them is one of them is migration and and the factors that lead to migration, such as conflict or statelessness. Without actually addressing those issues, things like human trafficking are going to continue to flourish. So that's mainly what we wanted to get across today. Do you have any final words, Amber? I would just say that it's it's a really complex issue that needs to be looked at from several different lenses. You know, it's it's not just such an easy fix. However, that does not mean that we shouldn't be trying. And let's just make sure on a world scale if that if we want to address human trafficking that this is part of that equation that we have to as a world find a way to deal or to to help refugees and people who are displaced. And if you want a more concrete way of helping out, I know a lot of refugee resettlement agencies uh, do need volunteers. So it's worth inquiring with your local refugee agency if you have one, um, such as the African Community Center here in Denver or Lutheran Family Services. I know a lot of them do use volunteers. And so that's one way to help if it's of interest to you to have a more concrete way of doing so. So thank you for joining us today for this uh, complex topic. And we look forward to talking to you again. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.